Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Bouchard. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Colin Green, Professor of Economics at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Colin's research interests cover a range of areas in applied microeconomics and public policy, including education, the labor market, health, personnel economics, and political science. In all cases, he's researching highly policy-relevant questions, and so is exactly the sort of guest we love to talk to on Policy Matters. So welcome, Colin. Thank you for joining us. Brilliant. Thank you for having me on here. So we're taking advantage of being locked down again uh, by talking to someone from outside the UK. Colin, you're originally from Australia, but thankfully you're not in Australia right now. Otherwise, the time difference might be quite harsh on you. You're in Norway at the moment. Before we kick off, tell us how have things been for you in Norway over the last year? I guess the the easiest way to sum up the situation here is that whilst they haven't been brilliant, we can't complain. Um, We had some school lockdown early on, so maybe five or six weeks for my children to go to school. But since then, schools have essentially been open. The universities have seesawed a little bit between teaching in person and not, but for the most part, we've had been able to come into the office. And uh, otherwise, uh, I think, I mean, one of the big takeaways or my view here is that um, we had very clear messaging at all times from the authorities here. So when they've gone to act, they've told us, they've explained, there've been a couple of missteps, but generally, even with my poor Norwegian skills, I've understood what's going to happen and why. That sounds pretty good. Uh, perhaps quite contrasting to the UK experience, especially about schooling. Matt and I were just talking about that. We're very excited about the start of school again yeah, because we feel it's been way too long here and we're getting a little bit uh, panicky about all of this. I don't yeah. know what your experience like is, Matt. But <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I think the schools, like you say, you know, we've had different restrictions at different times and different sets of rules, but I think. The schools being open or closed is the game changer, I think, for a lot of people, certainly for me and, and as Franz was saying. Uh, so, yeah, with schools reopening in the UK um, very soon, that's, uh, that's, that's going to be key. I don't mind how long you keep the pub shut and the, uh, the restaurants or whatever, just keep the schools open and, uh, and, and I'll be happy, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's been a very clear priority here from fairly early on is to get the schools open and keep them open and everything else can kind of, I mean, as I said, some missteps and some things which maybe ex post haven't gone right, but generally they've stayed on that target and it's worked well. We've never been in a situation, obviously, like the UK in terms of the number of cases. Norway has been either well-managed or lucky or some combination of those two things. Yeah, I think it, it, it is funny that you see like New Zealand... Uh, and I guess Australia is kind of, you know, your 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 homeland. I've, I've done things quite similar, but it's like, oh yeah, Melbourne's going into lockdown because they found four cases, and you know, we we think we're doing well when we're like, oh yeah, we're down to less than ten thousand cases a day. It's just the orders of magnitude different. I mean, uh, you can't completely compare, obviously, and you know, they're very different countries and what have you. But it's it's quite a contrast that um, number of cases, incredible. Yeah, I mean, the Australian. Obviously, I've been seeing it from afar, and I'm. I'm not sure what my prospects of visiting home and seeing my parents again in Australia are in the immediate future, but it's been very, on some level, you, you appreciate the, the uh, urge to shut down things quickly and get on top of it, but it has also seen from a European side of things often quite extreme. Uh, you know, as you yeah. say, if you're down to end cases here and you're happy, there one person has it and we have to contact trace 450 people throughout uh, suburban Melbourne. 
quite draconian, I guess, in some way. But talking of draconian, that leads us uh, nicely into our first uh, topic of conversation. Now, some people who live in London might think the congestion charge is rather draconian in itself. You've had a few papers, you've had a couple of studies that looked at the London congestion zone charging. We've actually discussed this previously on the show. Uh, I remember when we had Rachel Aldred on here, we were talking about cycling and uh, actually accidents as well and lots of interesting things there. And one of your recent papers looks at the effect of the congestion zone charge in London on pollution. Um, so I guess, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, that idea there in the first place? Sure, I think the, and this is, a, as you mentioned, a, a, one of a two or three papers on congestion charging. And in some ways, pollution is an obvious thing to look at. Um, we understand the economics behind this is very straightforward. We understand that traffic, urban traffic generates pollution, pollution's bad. Individuals won't take this, inherently won't take this into their decision making. So it's a standard externality. So this is nothing new. Uh, the congestion charge is not new anymore, obviously. It's getting close to, what are we at, 17, 18 years now. And there had been other studies that looked at pollution. But one thing, um, well, I guess we went into it expecting to find the fairly obvious thing that congestion charge reduced. We know it reduced traffic flows. And we expected it to reduce pollution as a result. Some other studies had looked at this. I guess, to be diplomatic, we weren't very convinced by their approaches. So often they compare just across time within London or they compare parts of London to other parts of London, which you can understand because they're similar. But previous work of ours showed that the congestion charge not only reduced traffic flows in central London, it also reduced flows around the congestion area. Yeah, because obviously you're not going to stop right in front of the border and, you know, be done there. Uh, so, you know, people stop driving up to the border for congestion charges. They kind of spillover effects as they're called in economics. Yeah, sure. And, and in addition to that, I mean, one part of the congestion charge, one of the reasons why it passed, I guess, is because of the way the uh, funds from the congestion charge were set aside to improve public transport. So there were explicitly changes in incentives to do other things as well. So as you say, yes, you can't drive to... If we think of the period when there wasn't a Western extension, you can't drive to Knightsbridge and cheaply leave your car there and walk in. So um, <laughs> that's not surprising. So, so you, we, we had that in mind. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, so you, you could, found, but... yeah, yeah, probably not the best strategy, but uh, you found, uh, so you did find some uh, effects on, on pollution like other people have found, but maybe not what you were expecting. Yeah, that's right. So there's a couple of things. One, I mean, one is just we thought we had a better research design, but of course we would we would say that. So we compare to we have a lot of different approaches to try to compare to other major cities in uh, the UK. Of course, the problem is that London is different, and that's part of the reason why the congestion charge came in London and not elsewhere is because London is different. So that's a difficulty. But one feature of well, I guess one feature of the policy was there are a lot of exemptions hidden away in there. So there's exemptions for taxis, which are disproportionately diesel right um and at this point in time this is the pre-volkswagen scandal period so maybe you can understand that we didn't think that was so bad and a push towards bus use which was also you know one part of the congestion charge was a, a dramatic change and improvement in the bus services within central london which are also diesel so we look at different pollutants and we find some evidence like others have that no uh carbon carbon dioxide particulate matter printed pollution goes down. But uh, nitrous oxide, NO2, uh, which is most closely related to diesel use, actually went up. 
as a result of the policy. And this is particularly harmful pollution, uh, harmful pollutant for kind of exposure through respiration, for instance. Okay, so it's uh, we're thinking this is going to tackle uh, CO two and and other um, exhaust gases, right? Uh, and and that's that's something we find. But yeah, that, like you say, before the kind of Volkswagen scandal, diesel was the oh, this is the environmentally friendly option, right? Uh, apparently, and now uh, now we kind of don't think that. Um, so actually, on the one hand, we've cut down, I guess, petrol use in the in the. Uh, congestion zone but it's this push into diesel that's actually quite negative yeah that's right i mean there was the, as you know the incentives towards we're all pushing towards that you should buy diesel uh diesel motor engines for private use for instance so obviously uh the authorities recognize this and many of the other things afterwards like local uh, the low emission zones both in london but also in germany that are directly aimed at heavily polluting uh vehicles which are disproportionately diesel. I mean, the other point I would make, so just to, to keep going, is that, of course, if we set the price, the congestion charge to some very high amount, we can get rid of all pollution. Yeah. If we stop people driving. So the other thing we do is we use flows data. Uh, we use it in a few ways to look at whether the rate of pollution goes down. So if per mile traveled, and we demonstrate I think quite robust results that show that the rate of pollution of the other pollutants, for instance, carbon uh, CO2, PM10 go down, but the rate of pollution of, uh, well, the rate of pollution of, of nitrous oxide doesn't necessarily, NO2 doesn't necessarily go up, but it goes up in a way which looks proportional to the flows that we can observe. So it seems like the narrative that you're finding here, I mean, first of all, I mean, we didn't talk much about the research design, but we have educated our listeners over many shows on econometrics. Yes. So uh, I think they, they hopefully they would have gathered by now that this is a difference in difference design where you have Sorry, a yes. very interesting control group where you're actually comparing kind of, you're trying to compare like with like London to this kind of synthetic London by combining lots of other cities together. But apart from that, you know, the, the kind of the core result here is that, you know, as always, life is complicated. And although, you know, the policy was successful in kind of reducing uh, pollution in one sense, actually, pollution isn't just made up of a generic level of pollution, there's lots of little, little things in there, different types of pollution. And one particular shot up because it diverged a lot of kind of usage into the kind of diesel, uh, diesel, diesel engines, and, and that kind of shot up, which which we now consider to be obviously a very bad thing, right? And I certainly have grown up in London over the last uh, how long have I been here? Oh my God, nearly twenty years, too long. Uh, but certainly, you know, I've got a pollution monitor in my home now. I'm trying to you know keep an eye out on these things. You know, I got kids growing up in London, so it's definitely shot up my. Um, agenda and how much importance I attach on it and also how much I'm willing to pay for it, for example. Yeah, I think yeah. you touched on there, Colin, just that we wouldn't want to get rid of absolutely every bit of um, pollution because that wouldn't be the economic thing to do. Right? There's a certain kind of, there's a balance because we get rid of all traffic, we kill a lot of um, economic activity, which as we, you know, we've all been learning in the pandemic, how costly it is just to close down things for a day, a week, a month, you know, however long it is. And so it's always with these things uh, a balance, right? Of of how much we actually want to allow, and and what you're showing as well, really importantly, is the type of pollution that we want to kind of allow and how we manage the whole kind of package. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, uh, there's trade-offs there. All economic activity generates um, pollution, basically, in some form or, or other. Some more than others, 
Um, the point you were saying before, France, I think it's well made as well that, you know, in 2003, some of these exemptions didn't seem so serious. So there's not a gotcha element to this because we didn't know. Or maybe we maybe we should have, but we didn't know that diesel was so bad. It didn't seem such, I don't think, such a serious diversion. But sure, during this, uh, you know, obviously pollution has gone down in many places over the last year in urban settings. And there's been a lot of discussion about this, but that's because economic activity is also at best changed, if not gone down dramatically. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, we're getting the kind of um, the lockdowns, we're getting rid of all the pollution in quite a brutal way, right? Of, uh, because we're also getting rid of all the economic activity. Uh, but interestingly, so you have this one paper where we look at the pollution and it's like, you know, there's some positives, but actually there's this unintended consequence that we didn't, you know, we didn't realize that diesel was so bad and that it was going to push everyone um, into uh, a form of transport that is actually really you know, bad for pollution. Um, but the other papers you looked at are on the kind of traffic accidents and what's the impact of the congestion charge and traffic accidents. And there, I guess, with the lockdown, we should get just the kind of the benefits, if there are any. Um, so, yeah, tell us, there are some, right? <laughs> In terms of, you know, you stop the traffic, yeah, you sure. stop the accidents. Yeah, but again, it's the same point holds. So this paper, was, this is an earlier paper and where we started on this, the same point holds. Of course, you can tax you can tax accidents out of existence if you want, because you can tax motor car use out of existence. Again, here the it's a bit more complicated because there's two elements. There's the externality that that um, as urban areas become more congested, the probability of accident goes up. So that's the externality you're trying to reduce. But at the same time, one of our concerns, and when we're thinking about this, was that um, of course, from the base of where London was at the time, where I think the standard figure you see is that something like one third of time or one, I don't know, one fifth of time was spent completely at a standstill. Increasing speeds in a highly pedestrianized area doesn't necessarily, it might reduce overall accidents, but may not reduce serious accidents. So that was one starting point. And to be clear, because you mentioned bicycles a second ago, I don't know if you recall, around the time when we were working on this, there was a lot of discussion about the idea and the press a lot of attention to the press that the congestion charge led to more bicycle deaths. And this was used in different ways. So for instance, the congestion charge passed in London, but was knocked down quite um, comprehensively in Manchester. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate wording. And one of the reasons they used was uh, at least one of the things we, which was thrown around was that this would cause more pedestrian deaths and more bicycle deaths. So we're interested in looking at this. Um, did accidents go down? It was one of the, you know, the main reason for the congestion charge was to reduce congestion, which might seem obvious. <laughs> but, but the second reason, well, in other places like Milan, the main reason to bring the congestion, their congestion charge was to reduce pollution. Uh, and, but the two secondary reasons they mentioned in the original um, policy papers were pollution and accidents. So we use the same type of approach. We, it's, uh, so you mentioned before France, like a synthetic control approach where we're trying to match to other urban areas. The main problem is that, problem for research, is not a problem for society, <laughs> is that uh, traffic accidents and fatalities have been trending down uh, over time. Oh, Roads have become safer. How unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> terrible for us, the people research. who are econometricians, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, very good for society. So any before and after analysis is going yeah. to, you could pick any time you could find a negative effect. We looked at that, we find that accidents go down, we find that deaths go down, we find most importantly the rates of deaths and rates of accidents go down. So it's not just a mechanical relationship, I think that's an important point. It's not just that we're taxing people off the road and by definition less people yeah. have access. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's, it's like kind of per mile driven. So, you know, people are still driving, but actually for what they're driving, the probability of causing an accident is, yeah. is less. So the roads, you can say hand on heart, the roads are safer. Mm. The, the one thing I stress is we looked at bikes. We have uh, data on some on bike flows uh, and we have accidents and fatalities. And 100%, you can find that after the introduction, deaths went up a little bit and okay. accidents, right? right? Which was what was seized upon. But the rate of deaths and accidents went down. So one part of the what happened, or at least our, our interpretation, is that there was an encouragement for people to move to an alternative mode of transport. More bicycles. So a lot of people went onto bicycles. Now, there's uh, two ways you play this is the roads didn't become less safe as a bicyclist. So on that level, it's maybe not a problem. But of course, some people, some small amount of people died who wouldn't have. So there's a bit of a cautionary element about how you you know, the roads didn't become, they became safer, actually, if anything, we show for bicycle, for cyclists. But you have to be a little bit careful in designing these policies about the incentives you put in place. For instance, maybe putting inexperienced cyclists into an urban area suddenly. Yeah, definitely. And I guess also, you know, if people, um, more people are on their bikes but also more people pedestrian you know more pedestrians if it's all of a sudden like you know that congestion charge there's fewer cars people get out there and i think as franz mentioned we talked to rachel aldred about this a couple of years ago and um you know just about the amount that's spent on different forms of transport and actually you need that kind of infrastructure you know it's no use suddenly putting loads more bikes on the road if there's no cycle lanes and and you are gonna uh, then increase the chances, I suppose, of people, um, yeah, having accidents, and so, uh, but that that was just an initial tick up, right? And then it kind of, you know, things improved. Yeah, the rate, uh, the rate never went up, but there was a tick up in actual the, the amount of, yeah, a small tick up in the amount of injuries. Fortunately, again, actually, there aren't that many within the central area. That many, for instance, pedestrian and bicycle deaths. Right, so they're on small bases already. Right. Well, this is good. Yeah, I mean, that's as you say, it's really good for society. These things have been yep. coming down. Uh, coming down anyway so I mean it's really interesting because a, a lot as you say with both of those kind of papers you're looking at kind of the unintended consequences of um, of policy uh, and that's something that we'll we'll come back to um, talking about some of the other work but for now I wanted to ask you about we spoke to Sanjitsa Vujic on the last program um, on some work she's doing about the effect of uh, Brexit and the, the the actual referendum vote and how that then impacted on uh, hate crime and that's, you know, that's one example of a distinct kind of political event that then has a, a measurable consequence on crime. And particularly, uh, this was related to immigration. And this is something that you've got uh, work on with your um, colleagues uh, in Italy. Um, and you've looked at the effect of the election of far right politicians on um, immigration, uh, on local uh, decisions where people move to. Um, so we've never had anyone on the program who's just full on kind of immigration as their main uh, topic. But actually, recently, we've had quite a few people. So we've kind of gone into this kind of economics of uh, migration, uh, which has been huge, you know, hugely growing kind of subfield of economics over the past 20 years, I'd say. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that, that paper uh, on this Italian kind of the effect of far right politicians? Sure. So and I, and I think it's, this is one where it's, it's kind of useful to have for me to recount the motivation for it. And there are a few things. There's a kind of an academic motivation and a, I guess a more normative policy motivation. One is that there, there's, a, you might be aware, there's a, now a huge literature, a really 
big literature over the last five, 10, 15 years about trying to explain in economics, but also political science and obviously uh, allied areas, trying to look at the determinants of the rise of fire for right parties, the rise of anti-immigration, anti-immigrant views, the rise of populism. And one stream of this has been some very clever papers which try to look at how, for instance, refugee flows or immigrant inflows into an area change the voting patterns of individuals. Right, so this is a, a, a big literature now and um, with, I don't know if there, how much consensus there is in the area. But one thing that struck me, so that's the kind of academic, so we were thinking, well, obviously as an immigrant myself, I was then living in Lancaster in the UK, thinking a little bit about how immigrants themselves react to the rise of uh, anti-immigrant groups. I thought it was important. It seemed to just basically, in some ways, asking the same research question, but the other way around. Yeah. And if I cast my mind back to when I was doing this, this was around the time at least of the Trump campaign and the Brexit campaign, and maybe after the Brexit uh, referendum, where they're just, even in a place like Lancaster, which is a very nice university town, where there were just a few instances of abuse and things like this towards colleagues and a bit of a feeling that as an immigrant, you were a little bit of a, you know, you weren't sure what people were going to say to you. So I don't want to push that too hard. So both kinds of thought, well, what happens to them? How do immigrants react them to these parties? So this paper looks at Lega Nord. This is in the period before, so Lega Nord has now become Lega. Yeah, Lega Nord were originally, uh, uh, here there's some parallels with many other parties in Europe. Um, they were originally a bit anti-Europe, but also they were anti-South mainly. And this is uh, this is no Lega Nord in Italy, not Lancaster, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Lega Nord is quite small. In a, there is <laughs> a small, small separatist in group in Lancaster, but they're not so strong. <laughs> so, but there's always been a bit of an anti-immigrant um, element, which started to dominate over a while, and then of course in recent times they spread, and it was amazing how quickly they spread to the south and became successful, despite the fact they spent the last 20 years saying that everyone in the south was on welfare and work shy, essentially. Right. And may or may not be real Italians, so I'd push that a bit a bit far. So we look at municipal level. So Italy, like Norway, has many, many municipalities. And we look at whether there's a Lega Nord mayor or not, and how immigrants react in terms of their location decisions. Now, there are a lot of empirical challenges here. So our particular approach is to look at narrow victories of mayors. So this is a I assume you've gone over research discontinuity design at some point. We're looking at essentially some sort of uh, as good as random allocation of an area to being Lega Nord or not. Yeah. So if, so if you're looking at if you're looking at extremely narrow victories where people win by you know a couple of votes or a couple of you know a couple of percent, in the argument is that actually that area was probably very similar to one where they just didn't elect the Lega Nord. The only difference really is that on the one side, you've got this Lega Nord mayor who's in charge of policies and expenditure, and the other side, you don't. Exactly. Yeah. So essentially what the, the, the real kind of take home is that if we look at these narrow victories, when Lega Nord wins um, by a narrow victory, then immigrants are less likely to be in that area. And what I mean is that they actually, the, it's driven almost entirely by immigrants um, choosing not to live, not to move into that area. So that's how it affects location decisions. Okay. So it's inflows, not outflows. Yeah, it's inflows. It's driven largely by inflows, which makes sense. One is immigrants are more mobile than natives 
in most settings. And of course, people making location decisions moving in are possibly the, the most mobile of all. That's really interesting because there is this kind of parallel with the whole, uh, as you mentioned, you know, other countries where these far right and kind of, or, or certainly uh, with less favorable stance towards um, immigration have, have had more influence. Uh, and in the Brexit uh, referendum, this whole idea that, okay, we aren't suddenly going to see all the European people or other um, migrants leaving the UK, but actually what's happened uh, and, and, and was kind of predicted is that it's the people coming in, you know, it's not so much like everyone who's here already is going to suddenly up sticks and like be off. It's the, it's the change and, you know, people decide, well, actually, no, I'm not going to move, not going to move to that country because of this. Yeah. Because of this vote. And in, and in, in your case, you're talking about the, yeah, because the election of these League of Nord, it's deciding where to go rather than wh when to leave. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the idea. People who are already located in a place have a range of social ties and jobs and things which mean that they have lower mobility, yeah. which is not to say you won't see it over time because, and it's a little bit anecdotal if I think about colleagues of mine in the UK, many of whom are European, many of whom have now left, Yeah, it was at critical points. The children are about to go into school. They're yeah. thinking about whether to buy a house or not. They were those type of things. So they'll it will happen, but it won't be so sudden. Most of the effects we find are pretty shortly after the election, first year or two. So, and is this effect sizable? I had a, I had a quick look at the paper. You mentioned things like 0.1 standard deviation, but uh, to a layman, it's not a lot. Yeah, I mean, these are the kind of questions you shouldn't ask someone on a published paper. Uh, okay, <laughs> well, I mean, I, did... I, I, I can translate <laughs> as an economist. It does feel like a lot, 0.1 of a standard deviation, but always depends on the context. But, you know, essentially, I suspect what your um, empirical evidence says is that if there is a mayor that is elected by a very narrow victory, actually, the inflow on migration is quite sizable. Uh, it's it's something that's definitely felt, and you you know you're not talking about a couple of you know tens of people, you're talking about substantial numbers of people who decided then not to join that area. Yeah, I mean that's 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 uh, an honest answer, and I I I mean I can give you a number of uh, very let's say uh, indirect answers. One is RDD is a very very imprecise uh, estimation strategy, so the fact that we found something means that it must have been relatively sizable. One of the problems in in interpreting it, and one of the this could also be said about Norway as well um, as, as Italy, is that flows are, you have to then measure on the mean size of the municipality because uh, Milan is a municipality and so is some small villages. So yeah, amazing feature of both countries that a mayor can be in but, charge of, have a population of 500 people and can have a population of 500,000 people. Well, that's why uh, you probably presented your results in standard deviations, which normalizes all of that, but without getting too technical here. Yeah. Um, I kind of just want to move on here a little bit because there's an interesting question here about people who do come in somewhere and then stay, and what are the effects of those people? And you have a very interesting paper, and I'd love you to talk to, talk to us about that a little bit, uh, and especially about the sort of the historical context there that shows actually immigrants who come and settle in an area don't just have an immediate impact on that area in terms of whatever really it is in terms of uh, labor market characteristics but actually have a tremendously long-run effect where we're talking something over the time span of decades if not centuries on particular factors now you talk about social capital in there so perhaps you want to explain to us what social capital is and also what the 
study was all about? Sure. So um, I am likely going to mispronounce a couple of things here. I am the non-Italian on this paper as well. <laughs> so this paper looks at a very unique event in the south of Italy, uh, where essentially groups of Albanian migrants roughly 500 years ago fled the Ottoman Empire and in some sense found sanctuary in fairly geographically specific villages dotted around the far south of Italy. So what we show this, uh, so if I might destroy the name Arboreshe, um, this group, they have, they're distinct in that they, in some cases, still speak a different language, dialect. They're Orthodox, Christian, not Catholic, and distinct in a few other ways. And one of the, the interesting things is they remain largely intact in uh, these, these uh traditions and groups in these regions. So then we, we look at these, you know, this is an area which has low social capital. So social capital is a, a difficult, an easy concept to explain, a difficult one to measure. It's the concept of rather than physical productive capital, you know, machines that produce things, it's interactions and things like trust and cooperation and other forms of social interaction which themselves are productive. So they're important but hard to measure. So just for a little bit yeah. for an interpretation, often it's assumed that social, high social capital has, you know, benefits such as lower crime rates in the area, higher sense of civic engagement, more cultural exchanges, you know, all, all the good things that you can think of for a kind of community. Yeah, and may even, even as in a narrow economic senses may generate higher returns, uh, wage returns to, to education and things like this by allowing better, uh, better institutions and better interaction. So one of the motivations of this paper is was that um, there was a literature out there, or there is a literature out there, which suggests that one of the costs, while immigration, immigration might be good for a lot of reasons, is more heterogeneous, heterogeneous groups, uh, more diversity erodes social capital because it introduces things like distance between people. Um, that could be language distance, but it could also be common interests or common experiences. So there's a view that even if immigration is or isn't good, it may be harmful to social capital. So we're looking at another case where it was kind of, we had it in the back of our mind, this is really my co-author Maria De Paola, it's from the area, um, that it was kind of known that this group within Southern Italy exhibited behavior which seems more pro-social. So we look at voter turnout, because we can measure that, including things which might be locally important, but even things like European election referendum turnout. And then we look at this other data source. Um, so naturally, uh, social capital is hard to measure. There's a TV license in Italy. So the TV license is not very expensive, but it's extraordinarily weakly enforced. So the idea is that paying it, or variations at least across a space in paying it, is may reflect willingness to pay taxes, even in the absence of enforcement. So we look at villages, which are tied to this original migration event uh, 500 years later and compare them to similar villages in the same area and demonstrate that these villages which originally received Albanian immigrants still have in the post-war period much higher voter turnout and much higher tendency to pay taxes and that's essentially the paper. It doesn't really diminish over the post-war period much either. I mean this sounds a brilliant uh, kind of research design where you've got this shock to the local villages i guess it run not it's obviously not randomly where people stayed but you know 
when you're comparing villages and, and trying to take into account their other characteristics, you've just got this kind of inflow in that's kind of almost random as to where people settle. And then, I mean, it's incredible to me that, you know, you've got 500 years later and you're still finding uh, post-war a higher um, turnout. And then even up to, you know, recent decades, higher turnout, higher probability of paying their TV license. I think as, a, as an economist and as someone interested in kind of research design, it's a really neat, uh, really neat idea. But just that incredible that this 500 year effect, I mean, what, I don't know, how do you see the kind of implications for um, assimilation of, of migrant groups uh, in, in the kind of current context where we've got obviously a lot more migration than was going on 500 years ago? Yeah, I mean, it's a slightly, uh, whatever better word, perverse case in that it's, a, it's not what people usually worry about. This is closely related more to this kind of other early literatures on religious persecution through the kind of Middle Ages onwards and particular groups being relocated around in that these are a group who's come in who have demonstrably higher social capital than pro-social tendencies than the, the local population. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. What does it tell us broadly? I mean, I like the idea because I just think as an academic it was it, like you, it's yeah. interesting. And it was, I was shocked to find the result, to be honest. I was shocked to find that it was so stable and that it didn't really diminish. Because, of course, um, over the post-war period, mobility increases. Yeah. So it's not surprising that maybe there's still an effect in 1950 because these are very remote places, which I've been to many. As so, you know, I run a conference in the area and I've they're not easy to get to still now. That, that, I can tell you that. Remember, not, yes, if we remember getting lost. <laughs> they're not there. easy to get to at all. Uh, yes. Yeah, but yeah. but they're worth getting to. That that is certainly true. They are worth the, the but, uh, getting to. But it hasn't diminished, and it, it kind of I guess something I had in the back of my mind as an Australian. Um, you know, Australia in, had this experience of uh, including some of my family massive immigration inflows in the post-war period and then really not much connection back to home because it was difficult. So you might see, I might see, I've seen my English relatives two or three times in my lifetime, you know, before it became easy to travel and you couldn't talk on the phone in the eighties because it would cost you know, yeah. a week's salary and it didn't work anyway. So maybe it didn't surprise me that in that earlier period, you know, obviously it's in the 18th and 19th century, it's very different. Uh, we did a few other things just to try and see that this is what we're picking up. We actually, I didn't do this, obviously. <laughs> One of the team rang up all the mayors, all the towns, and asked them how much, what proportion of the population do you think are Abaresha, are from this group, and what proportion are still Orthodox Christians? And we kind of used that in different ways. Um, we looked at the location of, you know, kind of instrumental variable idea. We looked at the, there are two seminaries where training, you know, there's not so a big supply of, Orthodox priests, for instance, or <laughs> yeah. or other people in the area, naturally. So, and use this as a source of variation. We find that there's more kind of adherence the closer you are to the kind of gravity sense to these mm. seminaries. Well, I got to say the 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 research design, and I, I'm personally a big fan of anybody who uses data that spans you know hundreds of years. It can still show an effect. You know, I can hardly show an effect from yesterday on today. <laughs> so, well done on that. But uh, listen, you know, there there is another thing I wanted to talk to you about, and this has me personally a little bit worried now. I, I uh, as some listeners may know, I am a professor at the university. And what some listeners may not know is that professors are generally on specific institutional contracts. So Matt uh, over there is should still be on a unionized, national unionized contract, whilst my contract 
is um, specific to the university. And now I have actually elements of performance related pay in my contract. Now there's not a, you know, not a lot, not a lot, you know, there's a few quid involved every year. Uh, but one of your recent studies on performance related pay does have me rather worried, Colin. Um, you know, am I going to end up becoming a junkie on the streets? Question mark. So do you want to do you want to <laughs> highlight your idea? We should never predict individual outcomes on the basis of averages. So it's hard <laughs> to tell, really. But uh, so this idea, I mean, this fits in earlier. We know that performance related pay increases productivity. Uh, it should generate higher wages for individuals. Hopefully that's part of the trade off for more effort. But there's a kind of growing literature. It's funny, I say it's a growing literature, but Adam Smith noticed this, noticed, put this in the uh, Wealth of Nations, that one of the effects of performance pay may be people working too hard and generating health effects, bad health effects for themselves, right? And so this paper fits in this. We've had other work which looks at injuries, for instance. Performance pay is associated with higher injuries. So when you look at this wage premium, you earn more in performance pay, but some of this is sorting on ability and sorting on risk, higher risk people, higher ability people going into performance pay. But some of this may be compensating wage differentials because the cost to your health in the long run or the short term from uh, higher effort is, uh, needs to be compensated for. Otherwise, you would do another job. It's a simple idea. So in this paper, we look at a cohort of young, I guess, youngish workers in the US and look at workers who receive any form of performance-related pay scheme and look at the effect that has on whether they use hard drugs, uh, marijuana or alcohol. And, what, yeah. should and, I be worried? Should we be sorry, worried? Sorry, yeah, drum roll, but uh, <laughs> yes, it does. So a variety of different approaches. We show that performance-related pay uh, increases alcohol use, increases hard drug use, drug use increases marijuana use. So there are a number of reasons why this might be true. We try and shut down obvious ones. We can, we actually have measures of risk attitudes. We have measures of ability. We do some sort of, we compare individuals moving in and out of performance pace or a fixed effects approach. We have a, some form of instrumental variable strategy, just looking at likelihood of a given job uh, taking up performance pay. Obviously performance pay works better in some professions than others. And it seems to be a direct effect, which we, I guess we interpret as being potentially things like self-medication or helping dealing with stress. So it's, it's, as you say, you know, you could be worried that it's just the type of people that choose a job that's got performance related pay uh, are more likely to be risk loving or, or higher ability backing themselves. And they might, might also uh, be more likely to use alcohol drugs as a kind of recreation. Yeah, sure. um, but it sounds like, yeah, having the, the fixed effect so you can compare people with themselves at a time when they have PRP and at a time when they don't. And, and this idea of um, looking at if your industry is more have it and, and kind of using a, a, that as a variation. I mean, that's really, again, as, as people who are interested in, in research design, this is ticking all the boxes of, you know, we can be pretty confident that this is a, a causal effect of uh, performance related pay. I guess, again, you've hinted at kind of policy implications in terms of thinking about, again, these kind of unintended consequences of a policy that is, you know, positive for productivity um i guess there's implications around just um I, I don't know occupational health and things like this yeah sure so of course some of the one things you take away from this is that uh, particularly if you're in a situation with a public health service is that there's an externality being generated here which is health on the health of the worker 
Now, maybe some of this is not external, it's factored into the worker's choice, right? To do this job or not, but some of it for sure isn't. And there's direct effects, which we're not picking up through maybe long-term health effects more broadly, but there are also effects to do with substance use. And these are going to be costs to society. They're sure for sure cost to the individual, but cost to society as well. So firms moving to performance pay have to pay workers more, but there's some external effects here, which are also wider, right? Interesting. Do you have any idea of the magnitude of this effect or, or of this, or am I catching you out here again? Yeah, I mean, these are the classic things. Yes, I do. And I had to write something uh, for the Norwegian press on this recently. So I had to spend a lot of time. Can you give us this. something on, you know, splits per pound or, you know, pints per pound or something? I like don't that? have a per dollar value. I don't have some sort of elasticity of uh, hard drug use or something like this. Um, you know, for instance, the hard drug use effects aren't big because this is, I'm trying to think the question is something, have you used it in the last some period? So it's a one percentage point increase, but it's on a base of about, from memory, two or 3%. So, yeah, so marijuana effects are, so they're often around, the alcohol ones are a bit bigger. They're often about, I think from memory, somewhere in the magnitude of 15 to 30%, depending on specification, increase in usage. So they're non-trivial. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering, looking at our professors inside the university, which, which poor soul got hit by this? <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> But um, well, I think you know that's the the interesting thing here is 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 you know having an applied economics approach, having an interesting design, research design, and and looking at a particular aspect of the literature and just taking it a step further. You know, how many people, how many firms have thought about linking performance-related pay to well, I mean, you know, specific health effects, specific kind of effects such as drug use. I, mean, I, I suspect not many people. So it's very interesting to have this come out into the open and, and show that there's this effect. And perhaps one does need to think about this a little bit, a little bit further. What are, as Matt said earlier, the unintended consequences of these kind of policies and how much of that filters through in the end? So I think, I think we've not got a huge amount of time, but I think we've got to ask you about um, one final area of, of research that you've been doing recently, and I think it's still you know, like ongoing, is very live, um, and is really relevant um, at the moment, given, you know, we've had recent, um, in the UK, this furore over how the government has allocated money for contracts for um, protect, some protective equipment for during the pandemic, and this whole thing of, you know, there's been a government priority lane for certain companies to access uh, the contracts that the government have been giving out, you know, huge amounts of contracts going out um, for all the kind of response to the pandemic. And you've got a paper looking at how political connections uh, affect the value of, of firms, FTSE 350 firms, and how this relationship comes about. I mean, absolutely fascinating and, and bang on kind of on topic. Uh, so can you just tell us uh, briefly a little bit about that paper and, and how you came to do it? Yeah, sure. So this was... Uh... To be honest, I can't remember. It is part of live. It's ongoing research. So we're also looking at political donations and a few other things at the moment. So this is an ongoing body of research. Essentially, this is... Or, or you yeah, say yeah, political but... donations for your paper? No, I'm not personally. I'm not personally making political donations. And, uh, you know, yeah. I'd make a donation if I could get a referee to give me a more positive view on this paper. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, so the idea here is that to, there's this idea, you know, for instance, MPs in the UK have always been allowed to have outside jobs this is a historical thing and it's not clear that you want to stop people from having outside jobs because you don't want to stop people with relevant expertise 
being attracted to to uh, politics. Yet the question obviously is how close should this be and how much of that is in the public interest? So what we particularly look is a repeal basically in 2002 of an earlier um, restriction which stopped MPs who had outside interests, declared outside interests, from doing certain things in parliament. So particularly if you had an outside, if you're a director on a company, and in any way it could be seen that your involvement in, for instance, a given select committee could be in any way seen as being in conflict, you could not do it. And you could not raise things in parliament, uh, items in parliament, which in any way could be in conflict. So we look that at the repeal of that. Yeah. So that so that policy is brought in. Uh, obviously, it's good in the sense of it's to try and stop any kind of uh, undue influence or you know any hint of of kind of um, corruption there. But on the other hand, the downside is that you've then got people who do have relevant expertise who are not able to bring that to the table when it comes to kind of legislation. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, there might be information channels which mean that you want these individuals involved. Yeah. So it's not clear. So the first thing we do, we look at the repeal of this law and we show that firms who had political connections, so have an MP as a director, um, at least one MP as a director, the market responds by, uh, in a variety of ways, by uh, increasing the, say, their share value or anything like that. So it, it has clear, the market views it positively. Right. It looks like it's profitable and value creating for firms. That doesn't really tell you anything about the social welfare aspect because it could be an information flows story. Yeah. yeah, it could be mutually beneficial. What we do, and many other people looked at these type of things, uh, not this particular reform. We go a little bit further. We just try and think about then what the firms, let's say it generates value. What do firms and MPs do? And we show a variety of things which suggest there's not in the social interest. So, we show, for instance, that um, firms who have MPs on board reduce how much they donate to political parties. Now, if we think firms donate to political parties for influence reasons, this looks like a strategic choice. So it's a trade-off. They, yeah. they no longer have to pay donations because they've got some other channel of influence. Exactly. So things like that, we show that firms, these returns are higher amongst firms who have a range of uh, features which make them lower transparency, um, poorer corporate social responsibility scores and things like this. So it's not evenly spread. So it looks like it's concentrated among certain firms who we think are more likely to be not acting in, in the uh, wider interest. And the final point, you know, running out of time here is that MPs react by those connected MPs are then more likely to get onto select committee boards, which is maybe not surprising, but more likely to attend uh, key meetings. So they're acting in some way to, to exercise this uh, ability. It all sounds, uh, yeah, like you say, not particularly great for kind of social welfare. If you see that on the one hand, uh, the firms uh, who are less transparent are the ones who, who are getting more um, value out of this. And then MPs are more likely to be involved in the decision making, the lawmaking. Um, it all kind of, yeah, all has a bit of a whiff of uh, not not being particularly great about it. So we'll we'll watch with interest um, how that how that pans out uh, going forward. I guess finally, Colin, we always ask uh, people when they come on the show uh, as we wrap up. We think about you know maybe one day Franz and I will will be parachuted into Downing Street as a kind of uh, 
PM Chancellor Double Act. I don't know which way around we'd do that, but we'll maybe have have a granita dinner at some point and decide that. Anyway, um, and if we were in those positions and we we are looking to appoint people um, who are going to come in and help us run the country, um, I think you know, given what you've just talked about, maybe we could put you in charge of the Committee for Standards in, in Public Life. Um, but uh, aside from that, any you know, lots of areas of policy, maybe the Home Office, you could be in charge of. What would you? You know, what's your kind of right? This is what we needs to happen uh, to improve society and the economy in the UK. Any uh, big question, but uh, maybe just give us <laughs> yeah, one easy. one one thought. And the further uh, the time since I've moved out of the UK, the less I feel uh, kind of qualified to comment on these. I guess I'm going to sidestep it a little bit, and I would, I guess, highlight one of the things about moving here. And I appreciate that Norway is not a comparator country for a lot of places. But you learn um, that there are a few things done here that I think are just considered impossible elsewhere and are effortless here. Now, that may reflect a pile of things. One is my, my view that a lot of issues, for instance, you know, I work a lot in education as well. We haven't talked about that. Stem from inequality problems and then the schools have to deal with this. Yeah. So addressing underlying poverty and inequality seems to be just a, a fundamental issue which could be tackled. The other thing is the... You know, as you may know, Norway is the, go back to the congestion charge thing, Norway is the number one place for electric car sales in the world. Yeah? Yes, we it know. We know. I'm jealous. <laughs> I want yeah. one, but they're very expensive. Norway is not a good country in terms of infrastructure for it. I don't understand why it's possible here. Norway is a very sparsely populated, very long country. Yeah. Mm. All right. It strikes me that this should be possible in the UK. UK is a very densely populated, it seems like the ultimate place where you could, yeah. with some issues, and rather incentivizing, we're so keen to incentivize diesel vehicles before, and that was not a problem. Why is it such a problem to incentivize electric vehicles? I think I think that's a very good question, and I think that's a really good uh, good point to end. We do often talk about education, and, and we could have, yeah, talking to you uh, about that a lot, but I think you're, you know, the idea that so many problems come from um, dealing with inequality and, and poverty. And so if we can get that right, um, that, that's going to solve a lot of, uh, or certainly contribute to solving a lot of other problems down the line. Um, and whacking a few electric cars at the same time. And I think you've got a good manifesto there, Colin. So uh, thank you for being willing to be on board our fledgling government that is not yet in power. But, you know, when it, when it is, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be we'll straight give you that call. on the phone. Great. So many thanks, Colin. It's been a really interesting discussion and a pleasure to speak to you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on board. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll be back with more soon.